you. It is good to be with you this morning. We're going to be starting in Genesis chapter 12, if you'd like to join me there. I'm going to read through or parts of about 13 chapters this morning. And, and as we walk through these, these passages in the Abraham story, we're going to take a look at his journey in life. We're all on a journey. And as we look at Abraham's journey, I want you to listen for the promises of God. And I want you to look for the thread of Abraham's faith that is woven throughout the story. And maybe, maybe you want to count the altars that he builds along the way. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. A promise of God. Verse 4, so Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Don't ever think you're too old to start. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. They set out in simple obedience. God said, go to the land I will show you, and Abram and Sarai went. They, they simply obeyed in faith, as God called them. Verse 6, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 8, From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. You'll notice when this passage started, God called Abraham very clearly, and, and Abraham Abram heard that voice, go to the land I will show you, and he simply obeyed. In verse 10, he's moving for a different reason. It's a famine. It's just circumstances that are outside his control. And sometimes that happens to us in our journeys. Sometimes along the way there are circumstances that come into our lives and, and things around us that sort of dictate that we have to make some changes and take a turn in the road. It doesn't mean we're stepping outside of God's will for our lives. It simply means that in the course of following the Lord, our lives have to take a turn. And, and I also want to point out, I, I can't help but point out, that, that in verse 5, Abram and Sarai, they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. And in verse 10, by the time we get down to verse 10, they've already moved at least three more times. I don't think they really arrived like they thought they had. <laughs> Chapter 13 opens this way. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. 
Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. And this is where Abram and Lot part ways. If you remember, Lot chose the land that was near Sodom, and Abram chose the hill country where they had been. Verse uh, and, and also, they parted ways because they had so much stuff. They had acquired so much stuff, and they had so, much, so many people to look out for all their animals and their things that their people started arguing with each other, and they couldn't get along. The land wasn't big enough. That's a lot of stuff. And so they had to part ways. And the Lord said in verse 14 to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north, south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. God says to Abram, get your eyes off of all that stuff. Look up and see what I am giving to you. The promise is being fulfilled. It's unfolding right before your eyes. Look at what I am doing. Verse 16, God says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he had built an altar to the Lord. And then uh, that chapter goes on, chapter 14, uh, we've got the defeat of the kings, and we've got uh, Melchizedek coming to bless Abram. In chapter 15, it opens this way. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And God seals that covenant with Abram. And they, uh, then Abram, of course, tries to fulfill the covenant in his own way through Ishmael. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. This is what it's all about. It's easy to look at Abraham's journey and see all the places where he's been and all the, the turns in the road and the starting and the stopping and all these moves and, and get distracted by everything that's happened on his, in his life and on his, his way. But it's really not about all those places and all of those things. It's really about this journey that we're on with the Lord, this relationship that we have. And God says, just walk before me. It doesn't matter where you walk. Just walk before me. I will direct your steps and, and let me lead. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. In the next couple of chapters, the covenant is once again confirmed and, and reaffirmed between God and Abram. And Abram's name is now changed. He becomes not Abram, but Abraham. And Sarai is not Sarai, but Sarah. And, and we have the promise of Isaac. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Lot's life is spared. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, 
for a while, he stayed in Gerar. In chapter 20, verse 13, Abraham actually describes his journey this way. He says, when God had me wander from my father's household, and I bet it felt like that at times for Abraham. I bet he just felt sometimes like he was wandering all over the place and could never really land. But in chapter 21, verse 34, Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. I'm sure that felt good. Chapter 22 just to kind of finish out the story of Abraham's life. Chapter 22, uh, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice, and of course God supplied the substitute ram. In chapter 23, Sarah died. In chapter 24, Abraham was very instrumental in finding a wife for his son Isaac. In chapter 25, Abraham remarried, and then he died at the age of 175. Did anybody count how many times he moved? (laughs) Kind of a lot. Did you see the promises of God woven throughout that? All the things that God said to Abraham to encourage his heart along the way. And the times that he built an altar in the moment of crisis. This morning we're going to share with you our journey. And we're not trying to say that our faith rivals the faith of Abraham. We're simply going to draw some parallel lessons. Things that we have learned along our journey that we've also seen played out here in Abraham's story. The first time I can remember really recognizing that I was on a journey with the Lord was when I was a student at Southern Nazarene University. I was a, a third-year accounting major, and uh, by that third year, I decided I didn't want to be an accountant. Uh, to me, that meant sitting behind an off, sitting in an office behind a desk doing taxes, and uh, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. But uh, I also realized that by my third year, to change. Uh, to change majors would mean staying a lot longer at school. So I didn't want to do that either. So I decided, let's just see how this plays out. And I, I went ahead and got that accounting degree. Well, by the time I graduated, like most students, I had no idea what I was going to do. And uh, I knew that I enjoyed working in the community uh, with different local missions. And I had some friends who were going to be going out to do mission work for a year uh, as soon as we graduated. And they invited me to go along. And uh, that sounded interesting to me. I'd never left the U.S., but I went ahead and decided to go since I didn't have any other options. And I I went to to Bulgaria. Now, I'd never left the country, but now I'm going to Bulgaria for a year. You can imagine. Uh, It it does take somewhat some calling to go to leave the country for a year if you've never been out, if you've um, if you've ever been overseas in another culture. Uh, But I went over there and lived for a year, and in that time, I enjoyed my time. I loved it, actually, and, and thought, you know, this might be something I could do. But I've got people saying they've got jobs for me, so I'm going to go home. I'm going to go ahead and, and start applying for jobs and uh, see what kind of accounting jobs open up. I came back, and as I started applying, those jobs just kept closing, and the doors kept closing, and that tug on my heart to go back overseas kept getting stronger and stronger. So when that last door closed, I went to Kansas City to our headquarters there, And I told them I'd like to go back overseas and do volunteer missions. As we talked, they they asked me, one of the first questions they asked me was, what is your degree in? And I thought, oh boy, they want to to hear a missions degree, a theology degree. And so I kind of reluctantly said that my degree was in accounting. And uh, they said, "That's, that's great. We need accountants in our field offices, regional offices, educational institutions. Uh, We can use you. And I realized right then how the Lord had been guiding me and directing me while I was in college and making those decisions. 
And so I pursued that further. We started talking about where I could go. I I thought I'd go back to Bulgaria, but they had other plans. They said, we'd like for you to go to Israel. So I went to Jerusalem, lived, lived there for four months, working in the Eastern Mediterranean field office, helping out there. After those four months were up, I moved to Switzerland and worked in the Eurasia Regional Office, filling in for the finance person while, while he was on his home assignment. After I finished there, I went back to Jerusalem and lived for three more months in Israel, helping out in the field office again. And after that, I moved over to Portugal and lived there for six months, uh, filling in for the finance person there uh, while they were on furlough. And that was a year and a half of, of volunteer missions plus the year in Bulgaria. So two and a half years of volunteer missions that I had been a part of. You can kind of see the starts and the stops and the starts and the stops, uh, just like Abraham. And uh, through that two and a half years, I realized this is what the Lord is calling me to do. And as I pursued that and talked to them more about being a full-time missionary somewhere, they, they asked that I, I come back and do some more schooling, maybe a master's. Maybe some some experience in a local church. And then under their breath, they were saying, maybe get married. Uh, I ignored that part of it, but I came back anyway and and, uh, moved to Columbus, Ohio. I grew up in Oklahoma, but I had met a pastor who came to Portugal on a work and witness team. And while we were there, he talked to me about coming to Columbus and helping him in a church plant uh, while I did my master's in exchange for room and board. And uh, as you know, missionaries, we need to stay out of debt. So it sounded perfect for me. So I moved in with them, did my master's and and helped out in the church there and met all those those requirements. So after getting my MBA, I I applied again to to um, be a missionary. Thinking, you know, I'd spent two and a half years in Europe and, and in the Middle East. I thought for sure I'd go back to Europe. And uh, as I talked to them, they said, we, we really need you in Papua New Guinea. And uh, my first thought was that that's not in Europe, for one. Uh, two, that's jungles and cannibals, I think. <laughs> um, and I, I wasn't sure about that, but I knew I, the Lord was, was calling me. And, and I went to Papua New Guinea. And uh, incidentally, I started asking around about the cannibals. I asked them, you know, is this true? And as I talked to, to Papua New Guineans after I'd been there a while, and, and you know, they, they never said yes or no. They just said, they just laughed. And I, so I still don't know. Uh, but uh, while I was there, part of my job besides finance was administration and recruiting volunteers to meet the needs that we had across our field. And uh, one of those needs is teachers for our schools and I was so happy to when Lane and Janelle Fosnall recruited Jill right out of this church in a service here uh, one Sunday to come over and be the teacher for our, our missionary kids there. And so Jill and I, as you know, we met there, uh, came back here, got married in the Gregory's yard. Um, and we have been went back to Papua New Guinea and started our family. Uh, Aiden is seven and he was born there. And Wiley is five, who was born there, and Noah is three, and he was also born there at the Nazarene Hospital. And uh, during that time, uh, Jill and I served together for eight years together while Jill was there, and then ten years myself uh, was there. And after that time, we knew that the the Lord was working on our hearts again and and asking us to do something different. And as we explored that, thinking maybe just a change in in responsibilities or roles, uh, they start talking about, you know, considering a change of of location. Uh, That was a really difficult decision for us because 
uh, Papua New Guinea was really our home. That's where we started. That's where we met. That's where our kids were born. And so that had that had become our home. So it was a really difficult decision. But again, we needed to to follow God's calling. And we made the decision to leave Papua New Guinea. We came back to the U.S. thinking that we were kind of done. Uh, we remained on contract for for several months. And during that time, a month before, we were due to be off contract with the church. Right as I was about to start sending out resumes, uh, they asked us about going to Africa. And, and so in 2011, we went to South Africa, where I worked in the regional office, in the finance office there. Uh, while we were there, Emma was born. So after three boys, we finally got our girl. So she was born in October uh, 2012, six months now. And, and as we neared the end of that two-year contract, as we always do, um, we were praying about whether uh, this is still where the Lord wanted us. And as we talked to our directors there in Africa, uh, we started realizing that maybe this was just another one of those start and stops. And so after the two-year contract ended, we left Africa to come back to the U.S., at that point, you know, we thought, well, now we're probably coming back to stay after going and coming and going and coming. Uh, but much to our surprise, the Lord surprised us again. When one week before, a couple weeks before we left Africa, we were asked to go out again back to Asia Pacific, this time to the Philippines. So in two weeks from tomorrow, uh, we'll be flying over to the Philippines to start yet another uh, adventure uh, in our journey. And so the journey continues um, but one of the things I'd like to do this morning, and maybe this is something that no other missionary has ever attempted, uh, is to talk to you, show you a little bit about what a finance missionary does. I, I tend to not talk about what I do too much because it's finances. I mean, it's, it's not exciting stuff, uh, but uh, it is a big part of, of the ministry there. And so I wanted to make a, an attempt at least to show you a little bit about what I do and what a finance missionary might do. This screen here is just a typical screen that I see as I open up my computer in my office. Um, this is the, the home screen for our, our system. You can see it says NOA. That stands for Nazarene Online Accounting. That's exciting, isn't it? We have our own accounting system. And uh, for short, we call that Noah. And uh, as you might remember, I have a son named Noah. And Noah is not named after this accounting system, I assure you, because that would be sick. So <laughs> Noah, was, Noah was born two weeks before this rolled out, so really, he wasn't named after that. <laughs> um, but Noah is the system I use all the time. And then uh, if you go to the next screen, this is just a typical uh, entry that I would do. It's just an expense. Um, you can see it's kind of just a boring screen of drop-down menus. Um, but as you look up there, you can see in the description, it says S. Riggins Flight, ALF Training. Uh, the reason I show this is because behind all of these expenses, there's always a story. And uh, while this might look boring, there's, a, there's, a, there's great stories behind these expenses. And this in particular was a flight that I took. ALF stands for Africa Lusophone Field. And Lusophone is the Portuguese-speaking countries in, in Africa. This particular one was Mozambique. And Mozambique is, is, a, is a, a great country in Africa. Uh, you know, Africa has like 600,000 Nazarene members. It's, it's quite a few members in Africa. Mozambique, about the size of California, has about 120,000 of those members. Uh, so it's the second, it has the second most Nazarenes in one country behind the U.S. 
So you can imagine Mozambique is, is a great place where the, the Nazarene Church has been working. But I went over to uh, Mozambique to train our treasurer there. She is a, a national that's working in our field office there. She has no accounting background. And so she was getting a bit overwhelmed. A lot of times we bring in our accounting systems, QuickBooks and Quicken and all these things. And we, we put that in front of them and we do this quick tutorial to show them how to do it. And this is, this is what you can do. And it does this and this and this. And then we walk out and they have no idea what they're doing. And we, we wonder why we're not getting any reports from them. Um, and then we go back over and we do it all again. And um, we've even gone as far as writing it out step by step. And it still is difficult. So a lot of times what I like to do, and this is really one of my favorite things I get to do, is, is to get out of that office and go to places like Mozambique and work with them on finding a system that works for them, that they can understand. And sometimes that might just be a spreadsheet. Enter your expenses here. Just keep a list of them and tell me how you want it, who's paying for this, and send it to me by email, and I'll put it in the system, and you'll have your reports, and we'll have our reports, and we'll all be happy. So this is one of my favorite things I get to do, is to work closely with the treasurers and helping them understand how they, how they play a part in the ministry of the church in a place, especially like Mozambique, where there's so much going on. And then the next screen is a, is a receipt. So a receipt, meaning money is coming in. So as you send money through the church, it goes to Kansas City. And then Kansas City can see where it goes in the world. If it comes to Africa, it would come to our office at the regional office there. And if it was meant for Ghana, we'll make sure it doesn't go to Kenya. And we'll, we'll send it out to them so the work can, can continue. And this particular one is uh, in the Philippines. And this, was, this is a radio program that's there. And as you may know, the radio uh, radio, Nazarene Radio is huge across the world. It's how a lot of people come to know Christ. And so it's a huge ministry. And uh, as I said, there's a story behind every one of these. And behind this one in particular, uh, we have a, I have a video I'd like to show you to show you just the story behind these boring pull-down menu screens. My name is Bobby Gandingan, son of a former chieftain of Subano tribe in Sambanga del Sur, Mindanao. Many people look down on the Subano tribe, but the Subano are proud of their own beliefs and principles. They have been known to fight and even kill to defend their dignity. I grew up in the village, but when I was in high school, I moved to town. I was familiar with all the practices and rituals of my tribe. My father forced me to do it because I was supposed to be his successor. Our leaders, especially the chief, conducts all the rituals of our tribe, so people respect them. But it is shameful if they know that you have a child with a bad reputation. I began smoking marijuana and cigarettes, drinking alcohol, and using drugs. I got involved in bad activities because I wanted to be bad like my brother. He was a member of a gang, but he was killed. When he died, I buried him alone in secret 
to protect our tribe's dignity. When I was studying, I stayed in the boarding house of the school. I was alone, listening to the radio, then I tuned into a program called Perfect Rhythm. At first, I didn't realize it was Christian music, but at the end of the program, there is an application that will touch your heart. Perfect Rhythm, be part of it. Our church can be your home. I thought, that sounds cool. It's nice to hear that. Through listening to the radio program Perfect Rhythm, we had contacts from listeners, and one of them was Bobby Gandingan. He was just in second year high school at that time. We were heard in six provinces. A lot of young people started listening. My first converts in church were young people. I have 55 young people. I started searching and asking, what is it really? Is there hope for me? And there I was nurtured and found out this is the good life. There is hope. There is a better place after you leave this earth. I stopped smoking. I stopped drinking alcohol. I stopped using marijuana and drugs. I also stopped gambling. So many young people began to notice the changes in me, and they also joined me. I invited them to listen to So Bobby started making contacts for Bible studies. Bible studies. We organized several small groups that later on joined the church. I want to go back to my village to share that only God can change our lives. It took me a long time to share my faith with my father. One time, he told me he was afraid of an evil creature on our roof. I told him, don't be afraid. I quoted Acts 4.12. No other name was given in heaven and earth can save us only the name of Jesus. After I rebuked it, the evil was gone. My father said, is that name really true? I said, yes, Jesus is real. He is the one who died on the cross for our sins. I was able to lead my dad to Christ and after that, he left all his practices and rituals. He even told his followers and they came to Christ too. My father died at the age of 82, and before he passed away, he told me, My son, never ever leave this faith that you are now believing. I have really proven for myself that he has changed me, though sometimes it is hard, but I am still happy because Jesus is in me. We came here and we were able to establish the Church of the Nazarene here in Lumponib. Four churches were planted because the people had heard our radio program. People look up to us because we have royal blood, but being in Christ is the true royal blood. Because the blood of Christ has redeemed me, and I became a Christian. He is the king of all the tribe's kings. Whatever your background, whatever your practices and culture are, all of us still need Jesus. Bobby's on a journey, and you can see how the Lord has blessed him as he has been obedient to follow that journey. And it's just our privilege that as we journey with the Lord, that we get to be a part of that, even in a small way. I probably never meet Bobby. 
but to know that I can be a part of that in serving him through finance uh, I, is, is a privilege. And in other ways, you know, with, with uh, Mozambique, I get to go there and be there on the front lines. Other times I don't. But uh, what a privilege it is as the Lord blesses as we are obedient to his calling. There's one more journey that we wanted to share with you this morning, and that is a young lady by the name of Vanessa. In 1994, Vanessa was a beauty queen in South Africa. She was a finalist in the Miss South Africa pageant. She was very into fashion and clothing design, and and her friends told her if you would go to Thailand and get some fashions there, you could get them really cheap, and then you could bring them back here to Johannesburg and sell them for a profit. So she took their advice and went off to Bangkok for a month. While she was there, her boyfriend contacted her and said, Vanessa, there's a couple of engineering books I need. Would you find those and and bring them back for me? And she agreed to do that. At the end of that month, she was at the airport in Bangkok, ready to board for South Africa, and she found herself in handcuffs, being led away. The authorities were telling her exactly what was happening, but they were communicating in the Thai language, and she couldn't understand them. Finally, they pointed to a sign on the wall, and that sign said, heroin equals death. And Vanessa realized that the engineering books that she was carrying had drugs in them. So her life dramatically changed. Her journey took quite a turn as she was led off to prison. A fellow inmate from Australia who spoke the Thai language was able to explain to her that her death sentence had been commuted to life. And Vanessa was assigned a uniform and 18 inches of space, a mat about this wide that was hers to sleep on, and that was all she had. She was 20 years old and three months pregnant. After the baby was born, then she shared that 18 inches of space with her daughter, Felicia. Quite traumatic. Vanessa and Felicia really survived by the grace of God and by the people that he put into their lives, that he had their journeys intersect. One of those was Vanessa's friend from South Africa who happened to be a Nazarene pastor's daughter. And she knew that we have missionaries all over the world. And and she said, I know we've got missionaries in Thailand. I'm going to find out who that is. I'm going to contact them. So she wrote a letter to Michael and Rachel McCarty. And and said, my friend Vanessa is in prison in Bangkok. She doesn't know the Lord. She needs Jesus if she's going to survive. Would you please contact her? Michael and Rachel very gladly started a prison ministry to one. Rachel began to visit Vanessa as often as she could. She took her a Bible, shared the gospel with her, began to write letters back and forth and would answer Vanessa's questions. And after about a year, in 1995, Vanessa accepted Jesus. And and her life found new hope and new meaning. But two years later, when Felicia turned three, the authorities told her, Felicia has to go back to South Africa now. All that Felicia had known was home in that prison in Thailand, that 18 inches of space. And her mother, that was all she knew, that was all she had. And so going back home to South Africa wasn't really home. But once again, God put someone in their lives. And a friend of Vanessa's by the name of Melanie, who lived in Johannesburg, said to, said to Vanessa, I've got, another, I've got a daughter that is about Felicia's age. And if you would be willing, I would be happy to raise Felicia for you. I'll raise her as my own daughter. And so Vanessa agreed to that, and Felicia was able to grow up in a Christian home. 
But back in Thailand, Vanessa's heart was ripped out from her. That was all she had was her daughter, and 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 she was just distraught. And her and she had been promised parole, and it was denied several times. And she was so discouraged, she went into a very dark depression for four years. She quit talking. She wouldn't eat. Soon she wasn't able to walk. And when they finally realized how sick she was, they put her in the hospital. One of her fellow inmates, who was a Christian, went to visit her and, and, and said to her, Vanessa, you've got to come out of this. You've promised your daughter, you've promised Felicia you're going to go back to South Africa. And, and what about the hope that you found in Christ? And, and slowly, Vanessa began to recuperate and began to regain strength and was nursed back to health physically and spiritually as well. When she was well enough, she went back to the prison. And she decided to learn the Thai language. She found that because of the suffering that she had endured, that she could relate better to the other prisoners who had endured lots of suffering. And so she wanted to learn the Thai language so that she could communicate to them the message of the gospel in their own language. And pretty soon she was able to preach in Thai. They had a small church that had started to meet in the prison. And, and she began to preach in Thai. And, and she was beginning to, to lead others to the Lord because of the love that she was living out and also because she was able to communicate the gospel. And that community of faith grew in, in numbers and in strength. They began to, to mark different days of the week for different things that would encourage their faith. So one day of the week was marked for a Christian community and worship. And they would, they would come together and worship together as a church. Another day was marked for Bible studies. There were, there were probably about 300 Christians at this point, And so they, they were, there were enough leaders that there was a Christian leader in each room of the prison that would lead a Bible study. So all of the prisoners were hearing the gospel. One of the days was marked as prayer and fasting for the prisoners on death row. And, and so each day of the week was something that would encourage their faith. And of course, the, this did not go unnoticed by the Buddhist Thai prison authorities. And they were quite upset. They began to persecute the Christians. They started making fun of them. But that didn't really do anything. So then they took away their Bibles and they wouldn't let any missionaries come to visit anymore. And that didn't do a whole lot either. And so they said, all right, the last straw, we're going to separate them. And they scattered them to all of the prisons across Thailand. And the book of Acts was reborn in Thailand. And while the morale initially went down in that church in Bangkok and when all the, the prisoners were scattered, when they finally got word back about what was happening, about the Bible studies that were cropping up in every single prison across the country, they were once again encouraged and their spirits, their spirits rose and, and their numbers rose also to about 400 women now in this prison that were Christians and that were taking part in this Christian community. Vanessa was able to train some Christian leaders to help uh, take over some of the responsibilities as she realized that, that her sentence, which had been commuted from death to life, had then been reduced to 35 years and then 25 years. And then finally, after 16 years, 6 months, and 16 days, Vanessa finally set foot on South African soil again as a free woman. And what a wonderful day that was to be free and in her home country again. But it was also a very difficult day for Vanessa, and there were many difficult days that followed and weeks and months of trying to adjust to all of the changes. She was grieving lots of deaths. When the news first broke in South Africa that she was in prison, before Vanessa had a chance to write a letter and send it back to her family and explain what had happened, her grandfather saw the news on the television and died of a heart attack. 
Her mother was in and out of the hospital while she was in prison. Her aunt that she had been very close to could not stand the social pressure and committed suicide. There were many deaths in her family that she was grieving. Her best friend, Melanie, when when, uh, Vanessa was uh, announced that she was going to be released, her best friend began to plan a welcome home party for her. Two months before Vanessa came home, Melanie died of a heart attack very suddenly. So all kinds of grief that she she was dealing with. She had a teenage daughter that she now had to try and build a relationship with. I'm thankful that Vanessa and Felicia today have a wonderful relationship. She was dealing with changes just in her daily life, in her routine that that she was trying to to figure out. Okay, she's had had such structure in her life with a uniform and set times and schedules and Thai food and Thai language and being surrounded by all of that and suddenly having to make decisions about what do I wear and what do I eat and it began to be overwhelming and And uh, the Christian community that she had become a part of was such a lifeline for her that it was hard to be ripped away from that family. And, And there were cultural changes as well. She had to figure out what is this thing called the Internet and how do I use a cell phone? And, and there, I'm coming back to a South Africa that is now 16 years post-apartheid. So there are all kinds of cultural differences from the South Africa that she had left behind. It would be very easy for Vanessa to turn her back on all of that and walk away and say, it's behind me, it's in the past, I'm not going to think about that or talk about that anymore, it's over. But that's not what she's chosen to do. Vanessa has embraced that as her journey. And she says, I'm not ashamed of my 16 years in that prison because that's where I found Jesus and he changed my life there. And she wanted to share that with others. And I had the privilege of meeting Vanessa in 2011 when Rachel McCarty came to South Africa and met Vanessa for the first time as a free woman. And she brought with her all of those letters that they had exchanged that had been a means of discipleship over the years. And and, uh, Vanessa accepted those letters and said, I'm going to take these and write a book about my story and what God has done for me and my testimony. And as she has shared her testimony, her mother has found the Lord. And many others in her family have become Christians and and countless others as she's had opportunities to share in churches and schools and all kinds of other venues and even just one-on-one in conversation. God has used her testimony to change lives because she's been willing to share her journey. It's good to do, like we have done this morning, to look back and say, where have I been? To answer that question, where has God led me? To look at those points where we've built an altar to the Lord, where he has really met us at our point of need, and to see how he has answered our prayers, and to to celebrate his faithfulness. And it's also good to look ahead and answer the question, where are you going? Now, it doesn't really matter where you're going physically geographically physically where we walk and geographically where we move that's part of the story but it's really about this journey and this relationship as God leads you every step are you still willing to say yes Lord when the circumstances change and and things come up unexpectedly and when When there's a fork in the road and and you're asking for wisdom, are you still willing to say, yes, Lord, no matter what it means, no matter what the cost, no matter where you lead, I'm going to follow. 
For us, that means that that in two weeks, we're going to be heading out to the Philippines. A new culture, new foods, a new language, all new experiences. Yes, Lord. I don't know what it looks like for you this morning. Maybe it means going to your workplace and sharing with a coworker. Maybe God's asking you to share at, with your neighbor across the street or a family member. Or, or maybe he's calling you to serve overseas. I don't know where, where you are in your journey this morning. And it really doesn't matter as long as we're keeping this journey current. And as we do that will continue to see his promises because that's what carries us in between those moments of crisis, in between those altars, those promises of God that he gives us along the way are what carry us through kind of the doldrums of life in between the crisis moments. Be willing to look for those promises, dig deep because they're all over this book. Be willing to look for those promises and continue to follow each day wherever he leads, and be amazed by his faithfulness.